Well, good morning. Thanks for joining us today at New City Church. Uh, as we begin, I'll share one of, I guess, one of my weird quirks that I have, and that is that I hate lotion of any kind, and I don't know why. And so one of the things that I've had to suffer through throughout the COVID pandemic was hand sanitizer is everywhere. And I, listen, I've washed my hands more than before COVID, but I still, I just can't. I can't do it. And nothing is worse than when you go to, like it's one thing if you go to a doctor's office or the dentist or something like that, and there's the hand sanitizer like on the, where you check in and you can fake it. Not that I would have done that, but you can pretend, you know. But when they do it for you, like they have it in their hand and like there's nothing you can do about it, right? And so I take it and, it's, and, you, you have, and they just give you so much, it's like dripping on the floor and it's like running down your arm. Like, what is this? Like, it's the worst, right? And so there's that, right? It's like, well, Dylan, just and be a normal human person and use hand sanitizer. Don't, I don't need comments from the crowd right now, okay? Just, right? It's just like, I just can't, right? And so that's bad. Uh, sunscreen. Also can't do it. I'm not against sunscreen. It's fine. But I, I hate how it feels. You could say, Dylan, just put it on after a couple minutes. It's fine. But those couple minutes, I can't do it. And so, but I've got this down to a science where I know how to be in the sun without getting burnt. So for example, last month, our family spent four days at the beach, didn't put on sunscreen once and didn't get burnt. Okay, I've got the rotations of like when to wear the hat, when to wear the shirt, when to take the shirt off, when to put it back on. And it is a lot of work not to get burned. You could just use sunscreen, but I cannot do it, right? And so in these instances, you're like, Dylan, just do it. Why would you not do it? This is weird that you are not doing it. And today, as we continue through the Gospel of Mark, we're going to see Jesus as being challenged by people who are asking Jesus, why is he not doing a common thing that particularly a religious leader is expected to do? And so before we get into that, I, today I want to give you some background behind the Pharisees. So one of the things that we try to do here at New City Church when we read the text and read the scripture is try to get into the mindset of the original audience who would have heard or read what was written. Because if we can understand what they thought or imagined, it can better help us really understand what's going on. So last week we looked at a tax collector. What does that actually mean? But today I want to take a couple of minutes before we read the text and explain to you what a Pharisee is. So I think most of us, if you've grown up in church or been around church or even Maybe if you have not been around church, but you've heard of the name Pharisee, you just kind of assume that's a bad person. Right? Pharisees are bad because they're judgmental and they do a lot of bad stuff. But like, who are they actually? And so I want to explain who they are, not just for today, but for any time you come across the Pharisees in the New Testament. So the Pharisees arose in the late second century. So about little less than maybe 200 years before Jesus is on the scene. Uh, they are a religious movement within Judaism. Uh, Pharisees literally means holy ones or uh, separated one. And, and to be holy means to be set apart. And so basically uh, their, their idea or their identity is that they were opposed to Hellenism. Now Hellenism is a fancy way of saying that they did not want the Jewish people to accommodate either outright or even subtly to the Greco-Roman ideas and customs. So it's not just that they don't want people to sin, but they don't want to take on maybe the dress or the customs or the, the diet. They want to stay strictly uh, Judy. What's the word I'm trying to say? Judaistic is not a word. But in their interpretation of the law, they, want to, they don't want to really accommodate to the culture in any way. Now, the Pharisees, they're not a political party. In fact, historically, they are pretty indifferent to political leaders so long as the political leaders allowed them to practice you know, Judaism how they saw fit. Now, they are marked by two things. Uh, the, this movement of Pharisees are marked by a really high regard for the Torah, which is the Hebrew Bible, but also for their, what, what we see throughout the, New, or throughout the Gospels is also the tradition 
tradition of the elders or the oral tradition or their interpretation of it. So you have the, the Hebrew Bible, you have the laws, and then they have their, his, their, their history of, of how they've applied it. And so how they applied it to many times is just as important as the law itself. And again, to maybe put some modern language on it, it's not a, a completely accurate or complete, you know, a perfect analogy, but maybe can help you understand a little bit. It's kind of like Roman Catholicism today. So Roman Catholicism, they, view, they, you know, they value the scripture, but they also value church tradition, right? And so what has the, how has the church traditionally interpreted passages or how has the tra- church traditionally operated? So they have scripture, but also the history of the church as well. So these are the Pharisees. They value the law, but also they highly value their interpretation and their practice of it. And so here's how this would have worked if you were a first century Jew. Most people didn't walk around necessarily saying, you know, I'm part of the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the Essenes or whatever movements there are in Judaism. The average person would just kind of say, I'm Jewish. It's kind of like today. Like if you're a Christian, you don't typically walk around saying, you know, I'm a Baptist or I'm Methodist or I go to non-denominational or Presbyterian. Like typically, especially if you're talking to someone who's not a Christian, you just tell them you're a Christian. Now, you might have a tradition that you've grown up in or that you practice in, but generally speaking, you're just a Christian. So the average person wouldn't go around saying, I belong to one of these movements. But of course, if you were a leader, you would be recognized as a leader in one of these movements. And here's a twist that you may not know, that Jesus actually followed closer to the foundational beliefs and practices of the Pharisees than any other group. Now, you see this with Mary and Joseph, his parents. Uh, it's not like God kind of chose two random people, that they seem to really care about the tradition and about uh, honoring God and the Hebrew Bible. We also know that Jesus confronts the Pharisees more than anyone else, which makes sense if that is who he is most familiar with. Now, of course, they are one of the more larger movements at the time, but he sees he, he confronts them constantly or is confronted by them constantly because this is who he is around, and he doesn't do things the way that they want him to do it. And so, in fact, one of the the main repeated arguments and problems that Jesus and the Pharisees or the Pharisees have with Jesus or that Jesus has with the Pharisees is that the Pharisees viewed that the, the, the Pharisees had a problem that they, he, they thought that Jesus did not follow accurately their interpretation of the law, right? So what the Pharisees would do, what Jesus would try to challenge them at is that they would often overvalue their interpretation of the law rather than and, and, and undervalue the intent of the law. So let me give you a quick example. In the, in the Old Testament, right, it talks about maybe an ox. Like if you steal your neighbor's ox or if you injure your neighbor's ox, here's what you have. Here's the payment for it. Here's how you make it right. There is not any laws about what to do if you do something with somebody's goat, right? So now it's not to say that you can steal someone's goat, but it's unlike today's where in the ancient culture, law code was, much, was a lot about intent. And so if you have a, a, a punishment for a similar crime and you commit a crime that's not explicitly mentioned, the question then becomes, okay, what does it look like to make this relative to other problems? And so Jesus is challenging them because they often created these extra, extra rules, which in and of themselves aren't bad. They created extra rules and stipulations to make sure that they did not break the Old Testament law. The problem is that when their, when their extra laws became law themselves and a, and a bar by which that they can judge other people. So, for example, in the Old Testament, it talks about honoring God and, and, not, and resting on the Sabbath. But it doesn't, the Hebrew Bible does not give you very many uh, examples of what does it actually mean to work on the Sabbath. And so the Pharisees, like many other people, would kind of create these guidelines of here's what it means to not to make sure you don't work on the Sabbath. And then the intent of the Sabbath is lost, and it's about following the rules. And so we've seen Jesus recently, right? He heals on the Sabbath. And the, the Pharisees don't like it. Why? It's not because healing is wrong. It's because healing is considered work, and you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. 
And so Jesus confronts them and says, no, the Sabbath was meant for life. It was meant to be life-giving. So, of course, if healing is going to happen on any day, it should actually absolutely happen on the Sabbath. And so as we read today, when Jesus is not going to do something that he, we, everyone assumes he is supposed to do, we need to remember this point. And that is that legalism occurs when what you do is more important than why you do it. Legalism occurs when what you do is more important than why you do it. It's not just about doing the right thing. It's about make, or it's not just about why you're doing the right thing. It's about doing the right thing, checking a box so that you can view yourself as good. So there's nothing, nothing in and of itself is legalistic. It's all of our hearts and our attitude and our mindset towards it, right? And so again, Sabbath, observing the Sabbath, that's not bad. It can become legalistic when we use it as a perch to judge other people or to say, you're not doing it the way that I think you're supposed to do it. And so the problem we're going to see here again is that Jesus is not doing something that is a good thing, but he's not doing it in the way that people want him to do it. And the problem is they're following into legalism instead of following the intent of what God is actually asking us to do. So if you're still with me, go ahead and open up your Bible to Mark chapter 2. We'll be in Mark chapter 2 today. We'll be in verse 18 through 22. Um, if you don't have a Bible, you can grab one of those black ones around you. We'll be on page 888 and you can follow along with us. Now again, we've seen recently between the beginning of Mark chapter 2 through Mark chapter 3 verse 6, it is five separate incidents where Jesus and the Pharisees kind of clashed or compared to one another. They kind of grow in intensity throughout. And so this is the third story uh, in a row of the Pharisees and Jesus being contrasted and compared to one another. And here's what it says. Verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. People came and asked him, asked Jesus, why do John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples fast, but your disciples do not fast? And so these people come up to Jesus. They compare him to other movements at the time. So John the Baptist, who created these followers and the disciples, pointing to Jesus, they're fasting. The Pharisees, again, they're a religious movement within Judaism. Uh, They're fasting, and they're noticing that Jesus and his disciples aren't fasting. Now, this is a big deal, right? So in ancient Judaism, uh, there were kind of three main pillars of, of ancient Judaism that really set it apart from everything else. And that was through prayer, almsgiving, which is giving to the poor, which we won't get into this morning, but it is a radical concept. We take for granted in our culture today that you're supposed to care for people who don't have as much as you. In the ancient world, you did not do that. You didn't care. If it wasn't your family, you didn't bother yourself with it, which is, again, part of the reason why Christianity spread so rapidly in the Roman Empire, because they were caring for all these people and starting charities and starting hospitals. I mean, historically, it is fascinating because nobody else did that. So prayer, almsgiving, and fasting were main pillars of ancient Judaism, of what, it, of what a faithful Jew would do. Now, there were various reasons and ways you would fast. So you could fast for a day. You could fast for multiple days. You could fast from sunup to sundown or for, uh, for certain meals. But you would fast for various reasons and for various ways. And we know historically the Pharisees typically fasted twice a week on Monday and Thursday. And so they see these people come up to Jesus. He says that they're challenged by people here. It's likely not that they're like trying to be jerks about it or try to be mean. They're, they're likely asking a genuine question that they're noticing that Jesus isn't fasting. That even if you were not a devout Jew, you would know, hey, if you're supposed to start a religious movement or if you're a religious leader within Judaism, you fast. So the fact that he's not doing this would be curious, right? And it would be, you would think, how am I supposed to take you seriously as a leader within Judaism if you are not fasting? So maybe to give you a modern example of it. Let's say my wife and I, we have have two kids, so there's four of us and a cat. And uh, so there's, well, four of us, yeah, she's not a human, she's a cat. And uh, now imagine uh, that we had a six-bedroom house and I drove a $150,000 car. 
right? You would look at me kind of weird. Like, how am I supposed to take you as a pastor seriously when you are living such an exuberant and lavish lifestyle? Now, to be clear, there's nothing wrong with a really expensive car. There's nothing wrong with a six-bedroom house. But we have these expectations of pastors that that they should live a certain way. And it it makes sense, right? If my primary income or if a pastor's primary income is the church and it's people's generosity, and if I'm living a lavish lifestyle, you'd be like, I don't know that I would go here. I don't know that I could take you seriously. There are certain expectations if you're a a religious leader of any context that people have, even if you're not a Christian. And if I lived in a massive house and had really expensive cars, you'd be like, that's kind of weird. That's, that's really what's happening here that all of us would question. Or it's like, you know, you see, you know, McDonald's commercials with, with superstar athletes. It's like, you ain't eating that. Like, who are you fooling? Right? You, we would actually be shocked if after they take that bite, they swallowed it and spit it out. Remember when the, when the camera was done? Like, that'd be weird, right? Or a singer. If a singer was, was a smoker, right? That would be weird. Or if you're familiar with local college athletics, it's like a UNC basketball or football player actually going to class. It's like, that would be weird, right? Or it would be like a Duke student telling you that they pay for their own tuition. It's like, you don't pay for that. That's mommy and daddy. Like, who are you trying to fool, right? That would be weird, right? So Jesus is doing something that not doing something that everybody would assume that he's doing. So this is a very legitimate question. Jesus, why aren't you and your disciples fasting? How are we supposed to take you seriously? And so here's Jesus' response. Verse 19 says this. Jesus said to them, the wedding guests cannot fast while the groom is with them, can they? As long as they have the groom with them, they cannot fast. So he's answering their question about fasting, and he's giving them this analogy of a wedding and a wedding feast. Now, weddings are a big deal today. They were even a more massive deal in ancient culture, in ancient Judaism, especially around this time. Uh, Weddings were a week-long, seven-day celebration. So it's not that everybody was there for all seven days, but it was a big deal. In fact, we, we see from sources that people that were widowed and got remarried, it was a three-day celebration. So that was also a big deal. And so what would happen, unless you were a part of the family who was responsible for putting it on and the financial backing and all that sort of thing, right? But if you were invited to a wedding, you don't do anything but enjoy it. Right? You don't have to prepare, you don't have to work, but you have a good time. Right? And so Jesus is, 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 is explaining his arrival here like a celebration, like a wedding. That is something to be enjoyed and celebrated. In fact, we have ancient sources. I was really excited when I found this. Um, that there is this expectation that rabbis and Jewish leaders would also relax at weddings. So it's not that they would necessarily do things that were sinful, but they might not be as uptight as they are all the other time for maybe putting modern language on it. And so this made me really excited because I love weddings. And one of my favorite things about weddings is dancing. And so one of my favorite things about officiating a wedding is that then being on the dance floor because people were like, what is he doing? Right? Because my booty's going to shake. Ain't no one going to stop it. Right? I may or may not drop on somebody's back that I do not know. Right? And so I'm just following the tradition of the elders. I'm having a good time at a wedding. So that, that's the expectation. It is a party that everyone is supposed to participate in. And so Jesus here is he is saying that his presence is like a wedding feast that should be celebrated and his followers are like wedding guests. And so what he is doing here is he's encouraging those who are asking this question, why aren't you fasting, to join in rather than fast, right? And he's saying if they really knew who he was, they would join him like guests in a wedding. They would be celebrating. They wouldn't do things that you wouldn't do at a wedding. Like, let me put it this way. Um, even today, like we, we celebrate and gather around food and drink, right? We have a good time, right? And so 
oftentimes there's no more bigger of a buzzkill than if you're getting together with some friends and one of your friends announces that they are currently in the midst of some sort of health cleanse, right? Because you know what that means, that they're not going to do what everyone else is going to do, right? And so this happened to me last year before COVID. It was January 2020, and one of my best friends from college, he's a, one of my roommates from college, him and his wife are missionaries in Poland. And so they were coming to stay with us for a couple of days, hadn't seen it for two and a half years, and they were going to go on vacation later, but that got canceled because of COVID. So they were coming for a couple of days, and I'm like, bro, it's college 2.0. We're staying up late. We're playing video games. We're going to cookout at midnight. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be awesome. And so they come, and we're so excited to see them. We're hanging out, and he announces to me that he is currently doing an intermittent fast, which means he only eats from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. And I'm like, bro. Now, I didn't say this. This is on the inside. I'm trying to be a good friend. But I'm like, Can you, how about you switch that? How about don't eat from uh, 7? Or, yeah, he only eats from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. How about that's when you don't eat? And then you eat from 7 p.m. to 7 Can we do it that way, right? Because what happened? All of my plans out the window, they didn't happen because he was not doing what I wanted. It, was, it stung. It was not fun, right? This is not what we're supposed to do. We are supposed to party, and it didn't happen. And so that's what Jesus is doing here. He's, he's challenging, challenging them to view him as different than they do any other religious leader or any other person that they have seen. And so he goes on to say this in verse 20. He says this, But the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and they will fast on that day. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's giving a startling image. You see, at a normal wedding, you would have the guests that would come. You'd have a good time. Eventually, the guests would leave, and the bride and the groom would begin their life together. But what Jesus is doing is he's giving this idea of a bridegroom being forcibly removed from the celebration and the party. Now, if you were with us when we started Mark, in Mark chapter 1, you know that Jesus' ministry begins after he's baptized by John the Baptist, and John the Baptist is imprisoned soon after. And if you know how this ends, Jesus is telling them that this is also going to happen to him, that he also will be taken away from people, but while he was still here, that his disciples don't need to fast. There will be a time when they need to fast. And of course, early Christianity was actually marked by fasting. But while they're with Jesus, he's saying that this is not something that they have to do. Now, the question is, why? Like, I get it. It's a party, the gospel that God is inviting us in. Like, that's, that's awesome news. But why, Jesus? Why don't you fast more often? And why don't you show people? And also, why don't you make it like a public thing? like everyone else does, so they, they wear certain clothes, and they, like, they make it this deal that everyone knows that they're fasting. Why don't you do that? Well, it's interesting. Here's the, why, do you, why do we fast? Like, why do people fast anytime, right? Typically, we fast because we're trying to seek the presence of God, or we're trying to ask God for something, or we're trying to seek His will or His wisdom in our life, right? We, see, we fast in order to experience more of God and who He is. And so, what Jesus is doing here is He's implying something like He does in all these passages that we were reading that, that can be missed easily on a surface level reading. But what He's suggesting here is that you don't need to fast when you're around me. Why? Well, here's why. Because to be with Jesus is to be with God. That's what he's saying here. You fast to seek God's presence, his counsel, his wisdom, uh, for him to move in your life. But if you have God physically present with you, well, why do you need to do those things? Because I am here. Again, this is why Jesus says things. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Or he says that I am the vine and, and you are the branches and the one who remains in me will bear much fruit, but the one who is apart from me can do 
nothing because we need Jesus because Jesus himself is actually God, right? And this is, again, first century or early Christianity was marked by fasting because they didn't have Jesus. It was a major discipline. But while Jesus is here, he's saying you don't have to do it because you already have God himself. To be with Jesus is what he's saying here about why they don't have to fast is to actually be with God. And if this is true, then it means the converse is also true. That if you are apart from Jesus, then you are apart from God. Right? If Jesus is God, if Jesus is to be with God, then to be apart from Jesus is to be apart from God. And hear me, there is no amount of good works that can change this. Uh, there is no workaround for this. There is no praying or giving money or going to church or fasting that you can do to change the fact that if you and I are, are not a part of Jesus, then we are missing out on God himself. There's no workaround for this. I've shared this before. It kind of makes me think of when I grew up playing the piano and a couple of my friends also had pianos in their house, but none of them knew how to play it. And so sometimes I would like play a song and one of my friends would be like, hey, can you teach me how to play that song? And I would be like, no. That's a dumb question. I can't teach you how to play a song because you don't know how to play the piano, right? I can't just like show you how to put your fingers there. Like unless you have some foundational basic knowledge, I can't just like, here's, the, here's how you play a song. You don't actually have to practice. You just like watch me do it and you can do it. That's not how this works. And what Jesus is saying is there's, there's no other way, right? And this is the good news of the gospel. That t- the question is, well, then how can I actually be a part of Jesus? If I need Jesus, then how do I be a part of Jesus? Well, here's how. By accepting what he has done for you rather than trying to do a lot of things for him, right? The good news of the gospel is that through Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection, you and I can be invited into the kingdom of God, not because of us or based on our merit, but because of him, that he is the ruler of of the principalities of darkness, that he is the one that heals us, that he is the one that stands in our place. The good news of the gospel is like a wedding celebration, because just like a wedding that you were invited to, you do nothing but show up and have a good time. The gospel is this invitation. You don't do anything, but you receive the invitation that God has for you, and you experience life and grace in his name and not your effort, right? If you are apart from Jesus, you are apart from God. And the good news of God, the gospel is a wedding celebration that God invites us in spite of us, not because of us, but because of him. And he's inviting these people to see him in this way. And so if we continue reading in verse 21, here's what it says next. It says, no one so if he's going to give us two quick examples of how he's different. So he talked about how he's a wedding feast, how being with him is like being in a wedding. And now he's going to show how he's different. Verse 21. He says, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new patch pulls away from the old cloth and a worse tear is made. Now, the ancient world is... Uh, different than our world, where today we buy clothes on purpose that have holes in them. Uh, they don't want holes in their, in their clothes. And so I don't know how any of this works. I obviously Googled it because I'm not a seamstress. Who knows? But here's typically how it works, right? If you had a tear, you have your clothes that have been washed and they've been worn. And if you're going to put a new patch on this tear, well, you also need to wash and shrink this patch. Otherwise, if you put a new patch on, a, on an old garment and you haven't conditioned it the correct way, when you go and wash this garment, the new patch is going to shrink and it's going to tear the clothes worse than were before, right? And so you don't put a new unshrunk cloth on an old garment because it's going to make a bigger problem. Or he says this in verse 22. He says, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is lost as well as the skins. No new wine is put into fresh wineskins. So uh, why, again, I don't know how this works. I had to look it up. Uh, 
Old wineskins get hard and brittle. Uh, new wine, uh, when it's created, it ferments and expands. And so if you put new wine in old wineskins, as the new wine begins to ferment and to expand, it will crack and rip the old wineskins, and it would spill out all over the floor, and you would lose it. And so you would have to put new wine in new wineskins so the wineskins can grow and expand as the wine does it. Now, what is Jesus actually saying here? Because this might be kind of confusing. Like, he's, he's different. Like, what's actually happening here? What, is he, what he's saying is that he is not simply a new thing on an old thing, right? So you don't put a new patch on an old piece of clothing, or you don't put new wine in old wineskins. But what is he saying here? He, what he's trying to tell them is that he is unlike and he's altogether different than anything that they have seen before. That he is not like their old categories of he's just another religious leader or he's just another movement leader. There's something altogether different about him. And if you try to place him in the same category as you place John the Baptist or the Pharisees or the Sadducees or anyone else that has come before, you will miss the point. So the first thing that came to my mind is I'm trying to think of what's a modern example of us trying to put maybe a, a, a new thing in an old category that didn't work. And then I thought of these things. Remember these? Anybody? What are these called? Floppy disks. Some of you are like, I have no idea. I've never seen one of those in my life. Uh, these are floppy disks. Uh, they had their heyday in the late 80s to mid 90s. And so what you would do is you would put this into a computer and you would store things on it. Now, uh, I... I was a kid. I mean, I was young. I don't know that I've ever actually used one of these, but they were around when I was a kid. And so, again, what would you do is you would store stuff on it. Now, if you try to put one of these in a computer nowadays, well, first of all, there's no spot for it. And second of all, the storage on these things was about 1.44 megabytes, which is nothing. So it wouldn't work. So, for example, uh, some picture files, for example, on your computer, depending on how, if it's a large picture, uh, one single picture itself would not even fit on one of these. But that's how, how different things are. And so instead of using little uh, floppy disks, today we have these hard drives. Now, this is a hard drive. It is a five terabyte hard drive, okay? Uh, this is one of the ones we use at New City for video files. And you're like, what does this actually mean? So I did some math on it. Uh, one megabyte, so this is 1.44 megabytes. It takes 1,000 megabytes to fit into a gigabyte. And uh, there are 0.001 gigabytes in a terabyte. So here's the question. How many of these would it fit, would it take to have as much storage as this? Okay, close. Uh, I don't know the math. Somebody did it for me. Here's the answer. You would need 3,472,222 floppy disks to have the same amount of storage as one of these. Right? It just does not work. It is altogether different. Jesus is saying is you cannot fit me in these old categories because I am unlike anything you've ever seen. And now, now we, we see this because when you read the, the gospels, you see that, that Jesus goes to the synagogue, but there's a different, different presence about him when he goes than when other people go. Or he's, he's like the teachers, but yet he self-proclaims to have authority over things that nobody else claims to have authority over. Or he honors the Torah, right? He honors the Hebrew Bible, but then he claims that all of it is pointing to to him, right? This is why in, in Mark chapter 2, verse 12, after he heals the paralytic and forgives his sins, that the, the crowd says that we have never seen anything like this. It is altogether different. And what Jesus is trying to show to the crowd and what he's trying to show us is this truth, that Jesus isn't an add-on. He is the main thing. He is not an add-on. He is the main thing. He's not something that you simply add to your life as, you, as, a, as a nice addition, but he is altogether 
different. And so when you place them in these old categories, you begin to see things incorrectly, right? And the challenge that Jesus is giving for his followers here is not whether they will make room for him on their floppy disk like we used to do a couple of decades ago. The challenge is whether or not they will forsake business as usual and join in in the, the wedding celebration that Jesus offers and understand that he is Lord over everything, not just some things. Because here's how we typically live, right? We have our categories. And so you might have your, your family. So this is my family floppy disk. All, you know, family life and all that sort of stuff is good. And so here's where I store my family and, and uh, here's my job and my career. And so I, I store my job and career on this section over here and, and uh, all my hobbies. So things that I like to do, uh, here's my, you know, how I do my hobbies and I store it here. Or, and here's my finances, how I, how I use my money. And so here's how I do that thing. And then, then here's my faith, right? So God has his own section, like maybe on a Sunday morning or, or when I pray, when I need something from him. From, from him. And so, so here's why I have this. And what Jesus is trying to challenge them with is that he is not, if modern language, a floppy disk. You cannot view him as you have viewed other people, that he is all together different, that he is coming to do something that nobody could do on their own, that he is going to perfectly fulfill the law on our behalf, not because we earned it and certainly not because we deserved it, but simply because he loves us. And if we really knew, if these people really knew who he was, they would join him in this celebration. They would accept his invitation and through the power of his spirit to allow them to live lives that honor God and to experience his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness. You see, if we fit Jesus into these categories, Categories that we separate our lives into and other, other people into, we completely miss who he actually is. He is not an add-on. He is not an addition to. He is not one of many. He is Lord himself, and he's inviting us to make him available and present in all areas of our lives, not just when we need him, not just when we want something from him, but in the good and in the bad, in the happy and the sad, when life is good and when it is difficult, he is present and he is Lord. And the question is, will you and I accept his invitation to experience the grace that he offers, that he did for us, not because we earned it, but because he loves us. His challenge for us as we read this passage, his challenge for the people around here who they see him not doing the things that everyone else is supposed to do, that they might see him in a new light. Not again, not as an add-on, not as an addition to, but someone altogether different. Jesus isn't an add-on. He is the main thing. Let's pray.